0: Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie.
1: Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron and my co-host is Kate Larie. Open Deeply is a podcast about life stories. And in these stories, we crack open our outer shells and go straight for the center of what makes us tick. Each of our guests is featured in two episodes. The first is devoted to the guests telling their stories, zeroing in on the pivotal things that shape them throughout their life. And the second episode is devoted to analyzing those experiences and parsing out how they fit not only into our guests' big picture, but also how they weave into the common threads that connect us all. Our guest today is Andrew Gerza, and this is our second episode with Andrew. In the first, he told his life story, and this episode gives us an opportunity to unpack and ask questions about his inspiring and eye-opening life. And? Before we go further, here's a bit more about Andrew. Andrew Gerza is an award-winning disability awareness consultant and the chief disability officer and co-founder of Handy, a sex toy company that puts pleasure within reach for disabled people. Andrew uses they, he pronouns and identifies proudly as disabled. Andrew is brimming over with full tilt lovability, humor, and naughtiness in the best way possible. So of course, he's been featured and interviewed worldwide in popular media like the BBC, Huffington Post, Out.com, and on several anthologies and many podcasts like Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast discussing what it means to be, quote, a queer cripple, unquote. He was the subject of an award-winning national film board in the Canadian documentary, Picture This, He's also the host of Disability After Dark, the podcast, Shining a Bright Light on Disability Stories, which was nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award, a Queerty Award, and was chosen as an honoree at the 2020 Webby Awards. Andrew's also the creator of the viral hashtag
2: Disabled
1: People Are Hot.
2: All right, but before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. Please know that this episode may have some themes such as sexual emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this podcast content, please get support. Call a friend, therapist, or emotional support hotline, such as 800-273-TALK, 8255. All righty so andrew here is your first question um no. <laughs> uh, i i've noticed that you have a lot of fun with terms you know that you call yourself like um and some people might see some of these terms as derogatory or objectifying but you just have fun with them you call you yourself a. Uh, bear in a chair. You've called yourself the human dildo. (laughs) (laughs) You've called yourself queer cripple. And I'm guessing this might be an example of what we talked about in your first story in the previous episode where we talked about good manipulation versus bad manipulation. In this case, it's probably positive manipulation in your mind. How do you think such language impacts those who hear you use those terms for yourself, and how do these terms psychologically impact you?
3: That's a big question. I think when people hear me use that terminology, they're shocked, and I kind of want them to be. I'm not going to pretend like there isn't a part of me that likes, that doesn't like shocking people. I like, like, oh no, he said queer cripple. Oh no, he said bear in a chair. Oh no, he said human dildo. Why shouldn't we play with that stuff? Why shouldn't... I show people that my disability is a part of who I am and we should be able to play with it. Now, I wouldn't recommend a non-disabled person or a disabled person running out in the street and saying, hey, queer cripple, what's up? I don't do that. But I think it forces them to take notice of what I'm saying. And then that way, when I want to talk about deeper things like ableism and all the stuff that I encounter as a disabled person, They'll see that I'm open to having really like difficult conversations through humor, and they'll see that I'm that I what I'm actually trying to say is let's talk about hard stuff through brevity and comedy a little bit. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That you, you make it less scary. Yeah, and I mean, I also make it less scary for myself because like disability can be hard sometimes, and I don't always want to be sad. I don't always want to be upset or angry about something. I think. A lot of people in the disability community and in marginalized communities have a right to be angry, but I believe that if you don't do something with that anger to transform it into something positive, you're going to make yourself sick, and I have become sick from being angry about ableism and disability, physically sick, so I was like, fuck it, I have to do something to make myself feel better, and part of the way I cope with it is through humor.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: I love that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and I think it's also, you know, it's there are a lot of folks when, you know, they encounter disabled people and maybe they're not used to being around and they don't know what to ask and they get nervous and they get, you know, all frozen and, you know, they don't know what to say. And that humor is disarming to open up that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Andrew, in your second story, that story beautifully encapsulated how different your experience with sex is in comparison to non-disabled people. And in an interview, you had spoke about your frustration with non-disabled people who always ask you, like, well, how do you have sex? Or like, can you even have sex? And, And you said, you know, why not ask instead of those questions, what's your emotional experience regarding accessing sex so that's the question I want to ask you what is your emotional experience regarding accessing
3: sex
0: it's,
3: it's such, a big question, such a big question it's such a big, such a big, I don't know, such a big question I don't know, I don't quite know how to answer it now because it's so funny because I've never I've never I always want people to ask it but no one ever has until right now so wow (laughs) so if I'm gonna answer that my emotional experience of sex is like because I need help getting undressed because I need help getting in bed because I need help to get positioned for sex I have to put an emotional bond with the person that I'm having sex with even if they're a sex worker even if like, I'm hiring them. There's still a huge emotional piece to that. And I wish people would under, would understand that it's, like some days I want to fuck and I just want to get off like the average person, but I also get off on intimacy. I love being intimate. I love, you know, cheesy romance stuff. I love all those things because I can't do a lot physically, but I can tell you how hot you are. I can tell you that I'm really enjoying this. I can use my words to make you feel good. And so my emotional experience of sex is, I mean, there's so much to impact there. Like, it's also traumatic because I'm constantly worried during the sex that the other person's going to leave and be like, Whoa, your disability is too much for me. Can't deal with this. Got to get out of here. Bye. And so, like, imagine trying to be sexy and sexual and having that worry in the back of your mind. So, I mean, there's a lot... I just wish sometimes that I could just say, can we not actually do the sex? Can we just lie with each other and be naked? And if stuff goes down naturally, great. But instead of having this script of, like, what's supposed to occur... And unfortunately, with a lot of gay cis men, there's a script of, like, okay, you're going to make out for a bit, then there's a blowjob, then someone's going to get eaten out, then someone's going to get fucked, and then we're done. Like, so... But for me, it's like there's so much more emotionality that goes into that. For me, it's like, okay, so you got me undressed. Now we're in bed. Now let's stop for a minute and take a minute and, like, sit in that. But, you know, cis, gay, able-bodied men, the most of the community that I sleep with, don't understand that. And it's not sexy to be like, can we sit and have an emotional moment together before we fuck? Like, so, like, I'm having all these feelings, but I can't express them because it's not appropriate in a, in a hookup situation to do that so I get really attached to the people that I sleep with I think you know I've said in interviews before that I'm a, I'm a fuckling which is like <laughs> which is like you know when a, when a when a baby duck imprints on their mom so Aww. I'm the same way when when I fuck you I imprint on you because you gave me a fun experience so I get really attached way too fast so in that way I'm a fuckling because I because I, I get attached to you. That experience for me as a disabled person is something that is rare. Even when I'm working with sex workers, it's still pretty rare. only happens, like, maybe once a month, um, maybe twice a month if I'm lucky. So it's not like I have a partner that I can say, like, do you want to fuck now? Do you want to fuck on, like, Tuesday or Wednesday? So it doesn't happen very often. So my emotional response is, like, it feels really good, but I'm scared all the time that my disability is going to be too much for you.
2: You know that that makes me think of two things. One, when you talk about being a fuckling and how that um, your experience being disabled has carved out your attachment style. You know, it's like when you, as a therapist, we think about attachment style and we think about how did how did mommy and daddy impact you. But more and more, I've thought about well, how did misogyny impact you, or ableism impact you, or race, yeah. and you know. And you're talking about how your literal attachment style was heavily impacted by your experience being disabled, you know, and I think, you know, and I I, I think that's something that almost all, like so many therapists are missing the boat on. They're not thinking about cultural implications and things like this, you know?
3: And I Um, hadn't thought of any of that until you said it right now, like like my attachment style as a kid, my mom was there for me, of course, we're very close, we're still very close. I talked to her an hour ago, but like, you know, when I was growing up, she was like, go be independent, go, go fall on your face, go try things. And so it's not like she wasn't there, but, you know, she, she, they weren't there for my kind of nineteen, twenty, like, growing up years. And how do you say to your mom, like, oh, I'm attached to this guy because no one else will touch me because I'm, I'm disabled. Like, it's different than when you're an adult.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm guessing that a lot of these things that you've been able to achieve that have that have taken a lot of emotional fortitude, no matter how fragile you sometimes express it, you feel that you're able to do this because you did have such a solid background with your parents,
3: you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think my mom, when I was looking to do this at first, my mom, she didn't discourage me, but she said, you know, I want you to have a I want you to have a stable job because being disabled is expensive, so maybe being a speaker is not the way to go. Maybe you should look for a government job. And I was like, well, the government won't hire me because I'm disabled and blah, blah. So, no, I'm going to try this way. And I remember when she first saw me give my first talk, I invited her when I first started doing this. I invited her to one of my first sex talks, and she was in the back of the audience, and she watched me do an hour of, like, sex education and kind of like lived experience with disability chats. And at the end, we were driving home and she goes, you're really good at that. And I said, oh, thank you. And she goes, I guess you're, I guess, you know, I guess I was wrong. I guess you will be, you'll be okay now. I I see you found your thing, you know how to do this. So good.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I just wanted to briefly say that it's interesting how being disabled kind of led you to have something that's akin to a tantric mentality about sex.
3: Yeah, it really did. Um, it really forced me to look outside the box and forced me to reconsider what intimacy looks like. Um, and so now, like, you know, I don't... I'm shooting a, and I don't film, you know, upon this recording in, in like three days. And I, I keep forgetting like, oh, we're there to film the movie. Like... It's not gonna it's gonna be intimate but it's gonna be intimate on a time clock like I don't have three hours to like to to luxuriate with this gentleman I have to do the job and then we're done and so like that that's hard for me because my whole disabled experience is take your time if it takes three hours fine so to have to do it in a timeline for someone else can be f- frustrating to explain, like my disability doesn't allow me to do that because I have all these emotions I have to deal with too.
2: Okay. Well, that, that kind of leads us to our next question, you know, and, and it's interesting. I wrote this question in advance of the podcast. And when I hear you say this, I'm already anticipating that your answer is going to be different than what I thought when I first wrote this question. But here's the question, you know, also in your second story, you mentioned that your sexual journey didn't start till college. So I'm guessing you still have a few things on your sexual bucket list. And if you don't mind at, if we ask, um, I'm wondering if you can share a couple of items from that list.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'd love to bottom. I've never bottomed physically. I've never been penetrated by anyone or anything. And that's something that I really, really, really want to do. And I don't know if it's possible because of my disability and because of my the the tightness and the specificity of my body, so I've kind of just written it off. But I feel like, as a queer person with a penis and many holes, I feel I feel <laughs> like I um I feel like I am missing out, and I feel like it's a queer male rite of passage to like do that with someone and to bottom for somebody. And I don't, and in our queer male popular media, this is what we see all the time. And I don't ever, I have never, I'm 37 and I've never done that. So I feel like I'm, I mean, I can eat an ass like a champion. I know how to do that quite well. But do I know how to get fucked? No. So I feel upset because I also live with irritable bowel syndrome and I live with a bunch of like tummy problems, which I think you know because be- before we were recording the first one, I bailed because my body was like, nope, not today. Um, but But, you know, so that's frustrating. How do you be like, how do you say to a partner, yeah, let's be sexy, but I can't fuck because I might shit on you. Like, how do you... That like So there's a lot of things that I want to do, and that's, that's one of them. I mean, yeah, another one of them is I want to have more public sex. I only did it once, and it was terrifying. Um, we did it in an elevator, in a subway elevator, and then he left me there with my pants down. Oh, terrifying. No. So oh, nice. I, I'd love to redo that. I want to have sex in a... Handicap bathroom stall Because I feel like that's very apropos Because they're bigger and it would be fun To be like, yeah, I used the handicap bathroom And yes, I had sex in there Like, dude, something really (laughs) So that'd be fun Um, And I want to experience What it's like to be in and out of a relationship I haven't really done that either Like, I don't date lots So that's something I'd love to try And to see what it's like to have somebody for more than Like, thanks for the blowjob, see you later Kind of thing, so There's a few things, yeah.
2: I hope that just saying it out loud like that just manifests
3: both of them for you. (laughs) Well, if anybody out there wants to do the first one with me, let me know. (laughs) Let
1: me know. (laughs) Awesome. Now, uh, in in the prior episode, in the final story that you told us, you talked about the difficulties that you had traveling by plane and booking a hotel, and all of that was due to systemic ableism. So, in interviews, you've talked about different types of ableism: you know, sexual ableism, institutional ableism, medical ableism, etc. So, can you talk about that a little bit more? What are these different types of ableism, and how do they fit into the big
3: picture? I mean, I think ableism overall is horrible, and for anybody who didn't listen to the first one, I think I mentioned the first one, but I'll say it again. Ableism is the the discrimination against a disabled person in favor of an able-bodied person, and I think different types of ableism are all the same thing. You're just not considering the disabled person as a person. You're not considering what their needs are. So sexual ableism is if we're in the bedroom and we're doing things and you say something like, oh, can you get an erection? It's like, well, okay, why would you think I couldn't? Oh, because you're in a wheelchair and like, you know, paralysis. Okay, so like, do you think I'm paralyzed? Did you even bother to ask me what my diagnosis was? Or did you like care to do some research? Like, you know, so there's that. And then, then other types of ableism are like, like we said, institutional ableism where you're in, in a university classroom and, you know, the they don't have accessibility for you or they refuse to give you accommodations. That's institutional ableism. And then travel ableism is like, just trying to get in a plane. So many people with disabilities who travel daily have their mobility devices destroyed by airlines, and then the airline goes, oops, no problem, we didn't know any better, sorry, best of luck to you, bye. And you're just like, well great, that was my legs for the vacation, now what do I do? Um, So all these ableisms fit together in that you're just not thinking of the disabled person's like life, You're not thinking about what they want. You're not thinking about their sense of freedom when you do these things and their sense of who they are. And if anybody was in those situations and that happened to them, they go postal. So when we get upset, people are like, oh, well, why are you upset? And it's like, because you didn't respect me. And there are moments where I've contributed to all those kind of ableisms. And even I have to like be kind of knocked in the head and be like, oh, no, that wasn't appropriate. Let's try again. So I don't think ableism makes anyone a bad person but i think when it comes to like institutional ableism and the bigger ableisms where corporations are involved we have to do so much better
2: absolutely And, and along the same note i i think this will just kind of dovetail into the next question you know you mentioned in interviews that you felt left out at pride and that and that queer and gay men can be especially ableist yeah. You know, what would you like to see change in the LGBT community and at Pride events?
3: I said this in an interview the other day, and I'll say it again. I believe that Pride events, just like we do for HIV and AIDS, we have fundraisers where we get the most fabulous drag queens and the most hottest go boys. We know those exist, right? So why can't we have the same thing to put a ramp in the club? Anybody want to tell me why that's not possible? Why can't we hire the most fabulous drag queens, the hottest goggle boys, all those things in that community to make sure that that bar down the street has a ramp, has a button, has an accessible washroom, has all the things that one would require to be okay. Why isn't that something the queer community is thinking about? Because all these queer men that go to these bars that look for dick and look for relationships and all this stuff, at some point in their lives, they're going to be disabled too so why are we not thinking about this now when they're disabled they're still going to want to get good dick right so why can't we make that accessible to them now and and for pride so many things we need to hire you need to hire disabled people to work with you on pride to make sure that accessibility is is not an afterthought you need to put disabled people in positions of power like make them the chief disability pride person, and have them be, you know, do that for pride, and pay them, and and compensate them for their views on what is accessible. Um, And really look, we need to look at why the LGBTQ community is so afraid of of disability, and I, I can posit why. I think that it's because back in the 80s, when all their friends were dying of HIV and AIDS, they saw disability connected to illness and death, so when they see one of us out in the world today with disabilities around this, they immediately flash back to, well, that was my friend in the '80s, or I was told by our culture that this is this is a sickness thing. I can't approach you. So I think if we if we addressed the fact that we have fear from a generation of men who lost their lives because of AIDS, and that we've unintentionally connected that directly to disability. I think if we started talking about that more, our views on disability in in queer spaces might open up a little bit. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, you're talking specifically about, you know, HIV and AIDS and and all that. But, you know, I think it's important to a lot of people probably project a story onto you. Like that's one story. Oh, you remind me of the AIDS crisis or whatever, you know, and just like you create this whole narrative of humanizing yourself and creating such a bold personality that it keeps people from projecting stories onto you as much, you know, and I think that's part of the work that you do when you humanize yourself and you normalize yourself is you break down these stories that people project upon you.
3: Mm -hmm. I mean, I had one guy once we are having sex in my bed. And he st- we had sex, and it wasn't great, and he left. And I said, oh, cool, we should hang out again. And it was a good time. I was being polite, and he was kind of cute. So I was like, oh, maybe it was, just a, maybe it was just a bad night, whatever. So I said, let's hang out again. And he said, well, actually, you remind me of my ex-partner's friend who was in a chair, and he died, and so I can't see you again. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm not that person, though. Like, why do I remind you of him? Oh, he was in a wheelchair, too. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so that's your only point of reference? Because we're both in wheelchairs. We're so similar that you can't... Like, okay. So, like, when I pushed him more into why, he was like, it's just too much for me. You're You're too dependent on me in the bedroom. You're too this. And I was like, wow, okay. Like, you're really going there. But it's because I think he had trauma and seeing his friend's partner get sick and probably pass away and that's of course hard but what happens is those like you're saying those stories get projected onto me who just wants you know a good time and some decent dick and a laugh and then i'm supposed to like sit there and help you hear your trauma when we don't talk about it enough
2: yeah.
1: right Yeah. And, you know, you also brought up a really great point that I think that a lot of people, it just kind of, you know, goes in one ear and out the other. And they don't really think about when you said most people at some point in their lives will become disabled. And, you know, especially now we're living in a world with long haul COVID. We don't know what that's going to do, you know, in in years to come. But, you know, how, how do you feel about that aspect of people just completely missing that point.
3: I feel sad for them because disabled people like me are a resource. We know how to get through this. We've been living through this our whole lives. And I am not saying that it's my responsibility to teach somebody, but because I put myself in a position where I want to be an educator, it's one of my joys to educate people on this stuff, to give them tips and tricks and ideas and stories on how to make this Transition into disability, which we're all going through right now. Let me, let me, let me, um, let me fix that statement. Not most of us. All of us will become disabled at some point if we're not already. I mean, Sunny, you know, with experiences with with people in your life, mm-hmm. and and you know, because we've talked about it, like there are people in your life that are that are going through disabilities. So you know how quickly you can go from able-bodied to disabled just like that. Yep. And so. Um, I think this idea, this, like, ignorance and blinders we put on where we don't think about, oh, that won't happen to me. It's like, well, that's so silly because, yes, it will. And why does it have... Why does it happening to you have to be a bad thing? Why does disability have to be this tragic thing that you fall into that's so horrible? I'm not saying it has to be great all the time, and it certainly is not, but can we look at it in a way that is... Not positive or negative, but neutral. Like, it's going to happen, so better to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in your podcast, Disability After Dark, which I just want to add in there, we just drove home the point that all of our lives either are or will be touched by disability at some point. So y'all should listen to Disability After Dark. Um, but it's had over 250 episodes, which is amazing. So tell me, what is your favorite moment or favorite guest that you've had on your podcast.
3: Oh my God. I love them all so much. They're all so different. They're my babies. Like I love doing episodes by myself where I take like popular media. Th- I've done a couple of episodes called like seasonal disability dating tips or something like that. Seasonal sex tips and disability, something like that. We're all at like, okay, it's fall time soon. So I'll look at like, what are the fall things that sexy couples get to do together and I'll look at these popular magazine things, and I'll say, okay, well, there's no mention of disability here. Let's review. Can I go kayaking as a disabled person? Cool, let's talk about how improbable that would be, or probable, and let's see how to make it accessible. Like, I love doing ones like that. I love doing the episodes that I call um, great flicks and joysticks, where I take, like, popular disability movies, and I, I review them. Um, I love, I just love all of it, because... It's grown from. If you listen back to like the original hundred, they were all sex episodes. And after about a hundred and fifty, I was like, I don't think I can do a hundred more sex episodes. I'm bored. But I don't. I think I don't want to start a whole podcast again. So fuck it. I'm gonna change the whole format and I'm gonna just make it open ended stories. Let's do that. And that's given me so much more that I can go to, because it isn't. I'm not stuck in adult, sexy, like, time, and, and, you know, I'm nominated for a lot of things in those categories, which is great, but I'm also, like, I want to do so much more. Like, I did an episode the other day where I talked to two 14-year-old non-disabled siblings who have disabled siblings and talked to them about what it's like to have a disabled sibling and what does that mean for them as teenagers, and, like, that was such a cool episode because I got to talk to the next generation of, like, people that are going to be encountering disability and I got to learn from them and so like it's such a cool platform to be able to bring somebody on or you know I'll get messages from people all the time who say you know your show really made me look at things differently thank you for sharing it like thank thank you for being a voice for us like it's it's so kind but I also never thought it would be here so I'm so proud of the whole thing as a whole that's amazing yeah
2: that is That is amazing. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that. I hope a whole bunch of folks tune in. Um, Okay, so now I'm going to ask you to put on your creative hat, okay? Ready. Uh, First, I'd like you to imagine a world in which porn and traditional movies weren't so separate. So in this world, a traditional movie might have some really hot sex scenes that go way further than we're normally able to see. Okay, but but also have character development and soulful, emotional connections and love. So, if you could make a movie like that, where the lead was a disabled person, what would the storyline be like? What would you want to see
3: oh, or make? That's a great question. Um, and I saw it when you sent it to me, so I was like, I don't know what I'm going to answer this one. So, I mean, um, I would want to see the disabled person having joy, doing little things like going, to, going out in their power chair. Well, I'd want to see a person in a power chair, because we have seen representations of disabled people, but we rarely see representations of disabled people in power chairs. So I'd like to see a disabled lead in a power chair. Um, I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see the story be about their journey into intimacy and how intimacy might look different. But also things like going for coffee, going for dates. Like, the whole rom-com dating thing needs to be expanded into, I want to go on a date with this person, but these venues aren't accessible. How do we navigate this? How do we do this? Stuff like that. Um, And then some hardcore dick scenes would be fun, too. I mean, if if in this imaginary world we can have both, some hardcore dicking down would be awesome, too. too. Yeah, I want to see that movie. I I do, too. I could start in it. And somebody hire me. I'll do it. I'll do it. Nice.
1: <laughs> nice. I can't <laughs> wait for that. So, you know, in the last few years, just as a whole, we've all become a bit more consent literate, you know, when it comes to sexual consent, even when it comes to non-sexual things like hugging and, and whatnot. Uh, can you tell us more about what consent looks like related to disabled people? What things do we have to consider that maybe we're not considering?
3: The number one thing is don't touch their chair without asking. Don't touch their mobility device without asking. If you see a disabled person, and even if you're their friend, and you, like, want to lean your elbow on their chair, don't do it without asking. Check first. It's like if I just grabbed your arm and said, oh, I like your arm, I'm just going to grab it. You're okay with that, right? Cool, thanks. Don't do that. Um, I also think asking consent around, can I ask you about your disability? Ask first. The person might say no, and they have a right to say no. And like Again, I'm an educator, so I put myself in spaces where I want to ask, and I want you to ask, but the average person in, in, with disabilities might not want to ask or might not have the spoons to ask. Um, I also think when it comes to sex, consent is so much bigger than just yes or no. By me saying yes to having sex with you, I have to allow you to put me out of my chair, get me in a position that I like, put me in my sling. All that stuff takes a huge amount of trust, and if I if if I say yes, that means I trust you, and you're not going to hurt me, right? So there needs to be a discussion of like what consent and yes looks like, not just no, not just you know there's a risk, but what is the consent within pleasure, too?
2: Mm. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about those things again. I just think probably a lot of folks don't even think about these things you know they and they've probably seen somebody just grab somebody else's wheelchair and move them and they didn't even think about what a violation that
3: is and you know depending on the person that might be okay depending on the person and the other person's relationship that would be fine but if i've had friends and myself i've been in places where somebody would just touch your chair and it's like i didn't tell you you could do that who are you you're a stranger like what if i get hurt so It's thinking about mobility devices as the extension of our our disabled bodies, the extension of who we are.
2: It'd be kind of like if I was at the grocery store and some big 6'5 dude came up behind me and put his arms underneath my, you know, armpits and just picked me up and moved me somewhere.
3: (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so Andrew... Um, You've spoken in interviews about the importance for disabled people to legally have access to sex workers, and, and yeah, that just seems so crucial and obvious to me. And I, I think it's an, an... I would love to hear you talk
3: more about that. Sure, sure. I you know, in Sweden and Denmark, they have programs where disabled people get a stipend at the end of the month, and they can choose to, to hire sex workers there. And I've seen documentaries and stories where people with disabilities don't use that money to hire sex workers and it's great. I've also seen sex work in Australia is okay. In Canada it's a different ball game. It's not illegal to be a sex worker it's illegal to be a client of a sex worker. Yeah. So when a sex worker says I'm a sex worker the law says that's fine we, we don't really like that but we're not gonna charge you. If I said yep I paid my friend for sex I could then be arrested for doing that, which is ridiculous. And what I'm learning from having done sex work with with the sex worker for the past four years is that it's such... I'm so excited by that because it's someone that I know and trust and care about, and I get to have an emotional experience with them. Not only are we having great sex, we're also friends. Like, he, he and I will text each other probably daily, especially during the pandemic, Just to be like, how are you? How are things today? You good? Good. Like, there's such a human connection there. And sex work is. Sex work really gave me my sex life back. I didn't start using sex workers until 2016, really. But I was. I had this seedy idea that hiring a sex worker was like this dark, dirty thing and I shouldn't do it. But once I started doing it and working with my primary worker now, John, we built such a friendship that I would say anyone who has the means to work with a worker, even if it's just once a month, like it's such a positive experience that I think it should be funded by the governments and it should be used as, again, not a supplement to therapy, goes here your therapist, they're great but used as a way to make yourself feel better and used as a way to, as sort of a therapeutic practice if you're disabled, for sure I do
1: Yeah yeah, that w- hopefully will follow in the footsteps of some of these other countries because that is so, I mean, I hate to say it's progressive. I hate to say that a basic human need is so progressive. Everybody
3: but, deserves the right to come and sex workers help yeah. facilitate that. So why are, they, why are they being vilified? It's so silly.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree with you. So now, Andrew, you've done so much with your life, you know, along with the public speaking and your podcast, and all the amazing things you do, you've also developed a sex toy company for disabled people called Handy. So regarding Handy, tell me, what are your favorite sex toy ideas for disabled people that you'd like to see mass distributed? And in general, what are your dreams for the next few years of your life?
3: Oh, wow. Well, my dreams are to move out out of Canada for the cold winter months and moved to hot. My sister lives in Australia, and so we we co-founded the company together. She's a marketing and ad whiz, and I am like a disability person. And so like together, our expertise in both those fields kind of made this company go. Uh, We chose the name Handy because it's connected to, like it's a play on the word handicapped. Handicapped was once and is sometimes still used as a derogatory term, it's it's much more widely used in the States than it is in, say, Canada. But, you know, it's once had a pretty negative connotation to it, so we were like, let's play with that. If we're going to create a toy that around hand limitations, because that's how our toy came to be, we noticed that, you know, Heather and I were on the beach in Australia one day, and she was asking me about... about my experience with sex toys. And I said, well, there's nothing really on the market for me. The buttons are really too hard to use. They're way too small. I don't have enough dexterity to use them. So yeah, there's just nothing for me. And she's like, well, don't you... What if we made one? And I was like, do I want to make a sex toy with my sister? Weird. But then (laughs) the more and more we talked about it, and we put a survey out on Reddit back in 2018, and we found that of the 100 people we talked to... 92% 92% of them said they wanted a toy like this. So what we what that translates to is that hundreds of thousands of people around the world are having trouble masturbating because of grip, because of dexterity, because of pain, and they want something to help them. So once we knew, had that data in mind, we were like, oh, we can do something with this. And so we spent, we have spent the better part of two years Sitting with design teams all over the world, and and primarily in Australia, to design a toy where you don't need to use your hands. So, if I could describe it to you, it looks like a cross between a pool noodle and a foam roller had a baby. Okay. <laughs> and the goal is that you don't need to use your hands to turn it on. So, we're we're just finishing prototyping, and the hope is that we would you be able to turn the toy on with your chin or other body parts if you're able to and then you could hug it like a pillow and just let the vibrations take you to a, a cool place or we're hoping to have to have a slot in the toy where if you had bought a vibrator that you couldn't work on your own because of your dexterity our toy will help you do that so you can use the old vibrators that might not have worked for you with our toy so our goal is to create a system where you can actually get off Wow! I love it. When do
2: you think it might be out out for people to see?
3: We just finished prototyping, so the hope is that pre sales are going to be ready by September. Fingers crossed with with COVID, who knows anymore? And the hope is that it'll probably be in people's hands by next year, early next year. Oh,
1: that's so exciting! Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, I like, cannot wait.
3: We're pretty, we're pretty, pretty excited about it because it's hopefully going to revolutionize. The, the the sex tech market, and we're excited by that.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. the the company is called Handy. Will the toy also be called the Handy, or is it going to have a separate name?
3: No, the toy is called the the joystick. We also wanted to play with the fact that many people use power wheelchairs, and many people use, if you, when you use the joystick on a wheelchair, is called the joystick. So we were like, that's kind of funny. That's kind of playful. <laughs> Let's do that. So the very first toy is called the joystick, and then... From there, we want to do things like education, sex education geared to disabled people. We want to do things like lingerie and lube and stuff like that in the coming coming years. But first, we want to make sure we can get this toy to the market and have it be successful. So that's what our goal is right now. That is amazing.
2: Well, I mean... It's been so amazing talking to you in these two episodes, you know, Um, Uh first with your three stories, you know, one from your childhood and how you learned how to kind of use, you know, move from negative manipulation to more positive manipulation over (laughs) the course of your life. And then your middle story about, you know, your sexual exploration and how that one didn't go as you would like but you're more and more trying to carve out a sexual experience for yourself that's better over the course of your life and then that last story um about being nominated for that award you know i mean you've just had such a rich life
3: yeah i mean and i'm only just i'm only just starting i'm i'm, I'm 37 and i've only been doing this professionally for a decade so like the professional side of me it's like it's only just starting i mean and who knows how long we're going to get, right? So, like, I always think about, like, because my disability makes my immune system a little bit less and because like, I'm sitting all the time, and because COVID's a real thing now, I am starting to think more about, like, maybe I don't have all this time, so I better pack everything in and really just enjoy myself. Yeah.
2: All right. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and the mm-hmm. discussion today. You know, your, your humor, your kindness, your naughty fun energy makes you know, talking about disability fun rather than scary for folks. And, you know, I know that probably takes a lot of emotional energy on your part sometimes, although I'm, I can tell you have fun part of the time, too. So thank you for that. Thank you. And, you know, and the world should be incredibly grateful for you. I know I am. And listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And we invite you to join us when we once again dare to open deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.